You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of The Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan on this 17th day of December 2011. I'd like to welcome everyone back to the podcast and invite you all, as always, to check into my website, CorbettReport.com, where you can find videos, articles, interviews, and podcast episodes that I've created and conducted in the past, and details about my new radio program on the Republic Broadcasting Network. First off today, I'm happy to say that I'm completely caught up with all of the DVD orders that have come in for the 2009 Video Archive DVD and the brand new Data DVD Volume 1, which contains, of course, all of the work that the Corbett Report produced from mid-2007 to the end of 2008 on one Data DVD. All of those orders have been fulfilled now, so either you probably have your DVD or it should be arriving in the mail any day now, so please look forward to that. And of course, to anyone out there who did order the DVD and is having problems receiving it or playing it, please let me know through the contact form on CorbettReport.com. And of course, let me also give a wholehearted thank you to all of the people who decided to sign up as Corbett Report subscribers this week, people who have decided to donate 100 Japanese yen per month. It's about $1.40 uh, per month US in US dollars. Just to keep the Corbett Report going and keep all of this media coming to you, I truly can't do it without your support. So to all of the subscribers and all of the new subscribers, thank you very much for that support. And of course, in return for signing up to become a Corbett Report subscriber, you will get a new, brand new monthly e-newsletter. And the first edition has shipped out for December, so anyone who signs up between now and the end of December will get that uh, December edition, the first ever edition of the newsletter, which contains a news roundup and analysis by myself, some recommended reading and viewing, uh, subscriber-exclusive video, and also discounts on the DVD, Corbett Report DVDs. So please uh, consider signing up if you haven't yet done so. It's a tiny amount per person, but it really does add up when lots of people are doing it. So once again, thank you for all of that support. And finally today on a housekeeping note, of course, this podcast is released each Saturday. And next Saturday will be Christmas Eve, and the Saturday after that will be New Year's Eve. So obviously I'll be taking those weeks off of the podcast. There will be no podcast episode for the rest of 2011. And perhaps the first week of 2012, I'm not sure yet whether or not I will be podcasting on that first Saturday. Perhaps so, perhaps not. But at any rate, I certainly will be back in the new year year here on the podcast. Back refreshed, recharged, and ready to go and uh, bring you all sorts of new material and exciting ideas that I have for the podcast. So I certainly hope that you will stay tuned for that. But in the meantime, during that uh, break on the podcast, there will be a lot of other media coming out on CorbettReport.com. So please do keep checking in to the homepage on a regular basis. The radio show will be continuing for at least part of that time. I'm not sure exactly uh, what the RBN schedule is and whether they'll be open or not uh, for for hosts to have live programs during all of that time. I'm planning to take, at the very least, the week between Christmas and New Year's off, so there will be some rebroadcasts of Corbett Report Radio during that time and perhaps some of the other days. But on other days, there will be, of course, new live broadcasts of the radio program, so I hope you will join in on that and, of course, uh, phone in when the lines are opened up so you can get in and uh, and share your thoughts on 
any number of different topic topics that we've been covering on Corbett Report Radio. And also, there will be videos coming out. I believe New World Next Week is scheduled to be coming out on its regular schedule each week. I'm not sure if we'll be taking a week off, but uh, those videos and some other videos will be coming out. So please stay tuned to CorbettReport.com. And of course, if you haven't yet done so, please do consider signing up uh, either subscribing through the RSS feed or subscribing to the email list so that you can get information on all of the latest media that's coming out of the Corbett Report. And without further ado, let's get straight into today's episode. Imagine that the most handsome, charismatic person stares you straight in the eye and says, you're special, you look good, and you're good at what you do. He seems to know just what you like. He reads your innermost thoughts. And you feel like you've discovered a soulmate, a deep intimacy. You're experiencing one of those rare fleeting moments that makes life worth living. (laughs) Before you know it, you're involved in a deep personal bond with a psychopath. Welcome, my friends, to episode 213 of the Corbett Report, Revisiting Psychopathy. That clip opening today's episode comes from a brand new documentary that was just sent to me by one of the listeners in the audience called I Am Fishhead, and subtitled Our Corporate Leaders Egotistical Psychopaths. And that is an extremely interesting documentary and one that we'll be getting into in more depth a little later in today's episode. But the fact that that was sent to me recently is just one of a series of, well, coincidences, synchronicities, if you will, that seem to suggest to me that perhaps psychopathy is becoming something of a political meme. And I say this because not only that link that was sent to me, but also a number of things that I've either seen or been sent recently seem to suggest that the idea of psychopathy at political or corporate levels is becoming more and more something that people are interested in talking about and interested in exploring into, something that I'm obviously quite grateful for, considering that when I first made my original Psychopath podcast episode, episode 90, back a couple of years ago, I think it was much less something that was talked about or considered when we were talking about the types of things that we're looking at in Corbett Report, which is, of course, things to do with the distribution of power in our society. And at the time, I was positing, well, there seemed to be a lot of psychopaths in positions of power. And that was... At that time, I think it was more of a revelation than it is now. As I say, it's becoming something of a meme, and I've seen so many references to this lately that I thought it was worth revisiting this topic and looking specifically at a new meme that's developing, not about political psychopaths, which is what we were focusing on in the original psychopath episode, but uh, now we're looking at corporate psychopaths, and that's becoming more and more popular as it seems, of course, the banking collapse does really seem to have been premeditated or at least perfectly understood by the people who were making it happen. So what could possibly account for people who would be willing to subject the world economy to, well, basically total Armageddon just in order to further themselves and their own family for a little bit longer? Well, that's when we start entering the world of corporate psychopathy. And again, as I say, this is becoming something that's more and more talked about. So let's take a look at an example of what I'm talking about when I say that it's becoming a meme by looking at no less than the Toronto Star, a rather mainstream Canadian publication at thestar.com. And on November 23rd of this year, they ran an article entitled Weeding Out Corporate Psychopaths. 
and I'll just read the opening of this article. Quote, Given the state of the global economy, it might not surprise you to learn that psychopaths may be controlling the world. Not violent criminals, but corporate psychopaths who nonetheless have a genetically inherited biochemical condition that prevents them from feeling normal human empathy. Scientific research is revealing that 21st century financial institutions with a high rate of turnover and expanding global power have become highly attractive to psychopathic individuals to enrich themselves at the expense of others and the companies they work for. A peer-reviewed theoretical paper titled The Corporate Psychopath's Theory of the Global Financial Crisis details how highly placed psychopaths in the banking sector may have nearly brought down the world economy through their own inherent inability to care about the consequences of their actions. The author of this paper, Clive Boddy, previously of Nottingham Trent University, believes this theory would go a long way to explain how senior managers acted in ways that were disastrous for the institutions they worked for, the investors they represented, and the global economy at large. If true, this also means the astronomically expensive public bailouts will not solve the problem, since many of the morally impaired individuals who caused this mess likely remain in positions of power. Worse, they may be the same people advising governments on how to resolve the crisis. End quote. Well, I will leave you to read through the rest of that article, a very, very interesting article that does raise a lot of the questions that we have been raising on this program for a long time. What if psychopaths are in positions of power? What are the implications of that, not only for the global economy, but for our society, our civilization as a whole, especially since it's quite obvious that if psychopaths, at least high-functioning psychopaths, are capable of uh, climbing up the business ladder, well, then certainly they're capable of getting into the positions of political power as well. And the ramifications of that for our society are obviously quite grave. So, well, we reached the point where it would behoove us to start exploring this idea of corporate psychopathy more. And of course, a good place to go would be the that uh, paper that was mentioned in the Star article, The Corporate Psychopath Theory of the Global Financial Crisis, which is available online. So I will provide a link to it so you can go and read through it yourself. And I will also direct you to an interview that I recently conducted with that, that paper's author, Clive Boddy, and you can go and listen to that for our discussion about corporate psychopathy. But in order to flesh this concept out a little bit more, let's listen to a little bit of that documentary that I referred to earlier, I Am Fishhead. And again, I will provide the links uh, in the documentation section for today's episode so you can go and watch this full documentary in its entirety, which I recommend that you do because I think it does have a lot of very interesting information and a very interesting message at the end about what what can be done about psychopathy in our society. But right now, let's listen to this section where they're fleshing out the idea of corporate psychopaths. In the spring of 2010, we heard back from Professor Hare. For the first time in history, his team was able to fish for psychopaths within the highest ranks of management at Fortune 100 companies, at the very top of the pyramid. We have a new study uh, looking at uh, corporate psychopathy. It's the first empirical study of this sort. Now, we had all sorts of anecdotes and we speculated, and even in Snakes and Suits, we would talk about individual cases. It's unusual because, to my knowledge, it's the first study that was able to use a well-validated measure of psychopathy with a lot of high-level executives. We have access to 203 
senior management uh, executives, people who were selected to go on to uh, further management training. They were considered fairly high potential individuals. The results are actually rather fantastic. The distribution of the psychopathy scores in this uh, population of high-level executives is about what you expect in the general population. What differs for this group is that uh, there are more people with really high scores and some of them, uh, I think eight or nine of the 203, had scores as high as the threshold that we use for research purposes uh, to diagnose psychopathy, that is 30 out of 40. And this was kind of surprising to us and we had a lot more who had scores of 25 or higher. These are very high scores. Here we had people who had very high scores and psychopathic, very psychopathic, and yet were seen as good employees, a high potential executives, and whose performance was exceedingly bad, and yet they were still rising up to the top. We had several people who were vice presidents of their corporations. We had others who were directors and supervisors, high-ranking positions, and yet they had all the characteristics and qualities that should actually doom them to fail. So what's it like to be a psychopath? You never have to feel guilty or ashamed again. Never. None of those sticky, uncomfortable situations. Responsibility? What's that? It's actually funny to watch when people cry. All you need is to smile at them, and they'll think that you're the nicest person in the world. You're so cold and analytical and they don't even have a clue. They can never guess what's going on inside your head. You can do anything you want. What happens in an organization is that the psychopath can mimic the high potential employee. And so they hide amongst this group of individuals. And high performers in organizations tend to get more resources, they get more training, they get bigger projects, bigger budgets, more staff. All the trappings of corporate power, which is exactly what the psychopath, who's a parasitic predator, is looking for. And it is unfortunate for the organization on the whole that the psychopath can do this. What happens in that small group is that the psychopath realizes that all of the other high potentials are rivals or potential rivals and begins to take them out through manipulation, lying, backbiting, all of those kinds of behind the scenes activity. The organization then begins to lose this cadre of high potential performers. They either leave of their own volition or they're set up and they're fired or they're sent to uh, another division where they're you know, out of the way, and then the psychopath has taken control. So yes, they do have an advantage because of their personality, and it really is up to the organization to set up some control mechanisms, some monitoring mechanisms to be able to differentiate the true high performer from those who only look like that. 
you could probably see it on the, on, at the world level. You're thinking of governments, government leaders, and I see no reason why somebody who is very, very psychopathic couldn't end up as a leader. We've had this many times in history. And you can go right back to the Romans and the Greeks and the Egyptians and just trace them all the way through. And many of these people clearly would qualify as psychopaths. But given the, the times and the context, uh, they did fairly well. Now, a lot of people suffered because of it. And I think what's happening right now is that uh, if we value what these people are doing, or maybe to put it another way, we don't actually pay attention to the bad things that they're doing. You know, we look at, this is terrific, the guy's he's doing this, he's making lots of money for us, and our popularity around the world is increasing, we're moving our armies around, and we're getting all this prestige and so forth, but people are suffering. Now, as I say, that's a very detailed documentary about this problem of psychopathy. So I suggest that you do go and watch the entire video. Trust me, it won't be difficult watching. It's actually uh, quite an interesting video to watch and the time flies by quite quickly. So I do suggest you go and take a look at that full documentary where they flesh out that concept in much greater detail. And of course, with the visuals in the video that you can use to uh, to help get grasp the the concept. But basically, I trust that that clip shows the the general principle of how psychopaths invade or take over a an organization and eventually start to draw all the resources and attention and time and all of the the everything at the disposal of the organization to themselves and to their cronies and uh, and it shows i think quite clearly in that documentary how that can happen and how a rather small problem can become a very large organizational crisis in a very short time basically just by having a, a psychopath in the system wreaking havoc throughout that system. So again, I think it's a very interesting documentary and one that it is worth your time to take a look at. And I suggest that you do that not only for the description of the problem, but also their idea for the solution. But on the subject of solutions, obviously the question of these psychopaths taking over organizations of various kinds, including banks and large corporations and even governments, as was alluded to at the end of that clip, is a very, very scary concept. And so we need to know what can be done about this and what can actually be posited as, as if not a solution to the problem, at least a defense against this problem. And on that note, well, there is a very handy YouTube video, again, called Defense Against the Psychopath. And it's a 37-minute video, and it contains, I think, a very, very detailed breakdown of psychopathy. So I do suggest you go and watch the full video because it talks about the different types of psychopaths, including narcissistic psychopaths and somatic psychopaths and cerebral psychopaths and corporate psychopaths and uh, victim-playing psychopaths and all sorts of different types. And I think it's very interesting, a uh, very detailed breakdown in a lot of ways. So once again, I will commend this full documentary to you. But right now, let's just skip to the, well, the real heart of the documentary, uh, where it starts talking about the ways that people can defend themselves against psychopathy. So let's start by taking a listen to some of this documentary, Defense Against the Psychopath. Defense Against a Psychopath. Facing Evil. One of the greatest advantages psychopaths have is that average decent people cannot believe that such monsters truly exist. This inability to comprehend the predator mentality is partly due to popular morality. All societies promote simplistic and idealistic morality 
through schools and churches that teach such platitudes as everyone has some good in them, everyone is special, and so forth. Such ideals more often serve as a cover behind which the true machinations of society can operate without evoking the suspicion of the mob. Another reason that people cannot face evil is fear. The true nature of psychopaths is the stuff of childhood nightmares. Many people simply cannot deal with the fear this realization causes, and so, to soothe their nerves, they revert to an infantile strategy of denial and magical thinking. If they do not acknowledge the existence of monsters, then the monsters cannot hurt them. The first line of defense against psychopaths is acknowledging their existence. By doing so, one develops a psychological advantage. Forewarned is forearmed, and having braced oneself with knowledge of predatory individuals, one is better able to think clearly and thus spot the predator before he can spot you. Once you accept the reality that human predators populate our society, the next line of defense is in identifying them. Because of their abilities at camouflage and deception, psychopaths are difficult to spot. They can fool even mental health professionals. It is important to understand that everyone can be conned. If you feel that you are the exception, you only make yourself more susceptible. Recognition A psychopath is like a smoking ember. The sooner you can spot the smoke and douse the ember, the better, since after the house is on fire, it is too late to contain the damage and destruction. Learn to spot the typical psychopathic character traits and recognize their modus operandi. Where possible, do background checks and or speak with the suspected psychopath's family and friends. Most psychopaths leave a long trail of destruction and heartbreak and will try to cover their tracks. A lack of background information is therefore as suspicious as a history of betrayals. Another of their fundamental flaws is a lack of patience and the incredible energy they use to maintain their facade. Over time, they drop their masks. Thus, one of the best methods of detecting psychopaths is to wait them out. Once you identify someone as being a psychopath, you have only two options, attack or evade. Well, so far so good, don't you think? But as this clip progresses, I want you to take note of whether you think there is anything that makes you at least a little bit uncomfortable about the overall narrative that's being developed here. So let's continue listening to the rest of this clip, the final minutes of that 37-minute documentary, Defense Against the Psychopath. What is vital to understand is that empathy cannot defeat the psychopath. You cannot change them. You cannot reform them. You cannot find the goodness inside them. You cannot show them the way to God. And you cannot teach them about love. All these approaches are doomed to failure, since psychopaths can never understand, nor can they care about these concepts. While they may lead you to believe 
that you are getting through to them, in reality, your empathy infuriates them, and far from admiring your compassion, they despise you even more. One must develop a cold exterior to them and view them from a distance. Do not pity them, feel sorry for them, or sympathize with them. Attack As a rule, the only thing that can defeat a psychopath is a bigger psychopath. However, should you feel no other recourse but to confront a psychopath, your one advantage is their fear of being exposed for what they are. They have known since childhood that they are different from most people. Their whole advantage lies in the fact that they know what they are and no one else does. Exposing a psychopath takes away his or her advantage and reveals their inner corruption for all to see. However, few people have the strength and intelligence to do this successfully. While the statistical distribution of genius and idiot psychopaths mirrors the general population, even a moronic psychopath can elude and outwit an educated accuser. Before you attempt to expose and expunge a psychopath, you must be in a position of power and you must choose the time and place. You also need to have your people briefed and ready to support you. This means creating a family and friends support group and or joining a support group. In an organizational setting, you need to have co-workers, managers, the legal department, and human resources on your side before making your move. The Chinese strategist Sun Tzu warned against attacking an enemy who has no escape, and likewise it is best not to corner a psychopath since the fight will likely be more vicious than most people can bear. Instead, use the threat of exposure to drive the psychopath away. The thought that they could be exposed at any time is unnerving, and most psychopaths will give up the current game and go in search of more ignorant and vulnerable prey. Evade A safer and easier strategy is to evade. Once you have identified someone as a psychopath, you must cut him or her off and out of your life completely. In a relationship, you may need to change your locks, change your phone numbers, and block your email account, close bank accounts, get a restraining order, or move. Take self-defense and firearms training. In conclusion, the study of psychopathy is an important new tool, not only in crime prevention, but in understanding the source behind many social ills. The more informed and aware you are of this subject, the safer you and your family will be. All right. Well, there are a number of very definitive declaratory statements that are made in that passage. 
that it might behoove one to check on the veracity of by trying to find sources for that information. So I don't want to do an injustice to this documentary and to just uh, paint a short picture of it. Again, I suggest you watch the full documentary and to actually follow the link that I will provide to a PDF booklet, Defense Against the Psychopath, which is a uh, a print form of basically that information. In fact, uh, uh, quite a bit more in-depth in this uh, booklet that's available for free download. It's uh, from a larger work called The Art of Urban Survival by Stefan Verstappen. And this uh, this excerpt from chapter one of that book was made into that documentary. So again, you can go and download that PDF booklet and read through it yourself. And there are end notes and things in there that you can go and check out. So I, again, I don't want to do injustice to this, but I think it is interesting to take a look at the concept that's being put forward here. Of course, these psychopaths, and we do know that these psychopaths exist. I think anyone who's been looking at the uh, at the situation for any length of time knows that there is such a thing. But it is interesting that we're being told to harden our hearts against them and to threaten to expose them, to get people on our side, to get rid of them, to uh, basically cast them out of society. Okay, I understand that concept very well, but it raises the question, well, how do we know who is a psychopath? How can we affirmatively make that statement or make that decision that this person is a psychopath? And the answer to that question is not so evident at all, because even the quote-unquote experts, and you'll forgive me for quoting that word rather than saying it, but you might know what I'm talking about if you listen to our recent podcast episode on expertology, but the even the experts in the field can't necessarily tell who is or is not a psychopath. People would assume that because I've worked with this particular concept, psychopathy, for so long that I could spot them from uh, 100 paces. And the answer, of course, is that I can't. Uh, I'm no better at it than most people. You cannot determine to what extent somebody might be psychopathic simply by looking at them even talking with this person for 5, 10, or 15, or 20 minutes. Sometimes it may even take six months or a year. And the problem is that we continue, as a species, we're sort of programmed to do this, we continue to evaluate people the way they appear to us. Once again, that was the world's, what is, who is considered the world's leading expert on psychopathy, Dr. Robert Hare in British Columbia, who developed the test for psycho- psychopaths, or the most well-known test. There are a number of them available, of course. But uh, even he says, well, he can be fooled by psychopaths and probably has been many times. So that is an interesting concept because it seems that we're putting up this idea of this type, this type of person that must be confronted, must be exposed, and must be fought against in every level of society and weeded out. But the question still remains, well, how do we I even identify who definitively is or is not a psychopath. And then what do we do? I mean, do we just keep driving them away into other people's arms? Is there something else that needs to be done? Well, as I say, that uh, that I Am Fishhead documentary from which that last excerpt came does have its own idea at the very end. And I'll, I'll let you watch the documentary for yourself to see what their solution is. And I think it is an interesting one. And I certainly hope that it's true although I'm not sure I can definitively say that it is. But at any rate, I'll let you make your own decisions on that. But it seems to me that we're setting up a type of system where there's a new form of witch hunt that would be very, very 
at least possible in this system. I'm not saying it necessarily would lead to witch hunts, but unfortunately, given human history, I think it's quite obvious where this type of thing will eventually go. And I'm wondering if anyone else is getting the impression that when hunting for psychopaths, it inevitably turns into something like this. Sit down. Here, if I talk, I'm kind of nervous when I take tests. I just please don't move. I'm oh, sorry. I already had an IQ test this year. I don't think I've ever had the one. Action already. time is a factor in this, so please pay attention. Now answer as quickly as you can. Sure. 1187 Hunterwasser. That's the hotel. What? Where I live. Nice place? Yeah, sure, I guess. Is that part of the test? No. Just warming you up, that's all. Huh. It's not fancy or anything. You're in a desert, walking along in the sand when all of a sudden... Is this the test now? Yes. You're in a desert, walking along in the sand when all of a sudden you look... What one? What? What desert? It doesn't make any difference what desert is completely hypothetical. But how come I'd be there? Maybe you're fed up. Maybe you want to be by yourself. Who knows? You look down and you see a tortoise, Leon. It's crawling towards you. Tortoise? What's that? You know what a turtle is? Of course. Same thing. Never seen a turtle. But I understand what you mean. You reach down, you flip the tortoise over on its back, Leon. Do you make up these questions, Mr. Holden? Or do they write them down for you? The tortoise lays on its back, its belly baking in the hot sun, beating its legs, trying to turn itself over, but it can't. Not without your help. But you're not helping. What do you mean, I'm not helping? I mean you're not helping. Why is that, Leon? They're just questions, Leon. In answer to your query, they're written down for me. It's a test designed to provoke an emotional response. Shall we continue? Describe in single words only the good things that come into your mind. About your mother? Your mother? Yeah. Let me tell you about my mother. Well, a little far-fetched at first glance, but when you think about it, what do we have here? We have a checklist of uh, things that the interviewer is looking for in order to provoke an emotional response, in order to find out whether or not the person being interviewed is a replicant. And of course, for those who are not familiar with Blade Runner, you can go and watch that uh, that movie, and I do suggest you do so. It's quite a, well, I think, quite a fascinating movie on a number of levels, and I did included as part of my film literature in the New World Order series, so after watching it, you can watch my take on it. But at any rate, there you go. There's the replicant test from Blade Runner, and it strikes me that this is something akin to what we're looking at here, this this type of, well, I guess a smoky, dim-lit room where the, uh, the interviewer is trying to look for the trying to scry and read the tea leaves, as it were, to, to find out if this or that individual is a psychopath. 
And, well, I, I hate to take it here because I am loath to give any credit or any uh, attention whatsoever to the extremely smarmy John Ronson, who people will remember from previous episodes of this podcast and his previous work making fun of those crazy kooky conspiracy theorists at any twist and turn. But... Having said that, he did come up with a book very recently on this very subject called The Psychopath Test. So let's introduce it with his own personal, um, uh, what is this, uh, advertisement for his book that's available on YouTube. The problem with psychopaths, psychologists say, is that they're everywhere. Some say one in every hundred of us is a psychopath. They aren't all in jail or in mental health facilities. You probably passed one on the street today. And it's not like you can tell who they are. Their verbal and non-verbal clues are invisible to unsuspecting civilians. Many are very high-functioning people who excel in politics and business. My strange story began when I was contacted by a man called Tony. He was in Broadmoor Hospital formerly known as Broadmoor Asylum for the Criminally Insane. He said he faked madness to avoid a prison sentence and now he's stuck. So I visited Tony. The patients were all wearing sweatpants, overweight, medicated. And then Tony turned up and he was wearing a pinstripe suit. It was the outfit of a man who wanted to convince the world that he was very sane. <laughs> he said it's really hard to persuade people you're not crazy. How do you sit in a sane way? How do you cross your legs in a sane way? How do you smile in a sane way? I believed him. He seemed very nice and normal. And then, later, I heard from Broadmoor. Yes, they said, they now accept that Tony faked his original symptoms of mental illness. But what he is instead, they explained, is a psychopath. The clues are there. The pinstripe suit, that's item one on the psychopath checklist. Glibness, superficial charm. Then there's the deceitful way he faked madness to get out of a prison sentence. That's item five, conning, manipulative. Faking your brain going wrong can qualify as evidence that your brain has gone wrong. Then some psychologists said something extraordinary. They said Tony's type of madness was the madness that makes the world go around. There's a preponderance of psychopaths, people with a complete lack of human empathy, at the heart of the political and business elites. And so I set about learning how to become kind of a qualified psychopath spotter. I learned the 20 point psychopath checklist from its inventor, Robert Hare. And armed with my new skills, I journeyed into the corridors of power. I found myself at the home of a legendary Fortune 500 CEO among his many sculptures of predators hunting prey. He was sitting below a massive oil painting of himself over the mantelpiece. This suggested item two on the psychopath checklist, grandiose sense of self-worth. I visited a former Haitian death squad leader, jailed in upstate New York for the unlikely crime of mortgage fraud. And something started to happen to me during all of this. My psychopath spotting powers did something to my head. 
I started spotting psychopaths everywhere. With some of my friends' psychopaths, my colleagues, I got drunk with power. I became such a determined, resolute psychopath hunter, I turned a bit psychopathic myself. And I began to realise just how so many people, journalists as well as psychologists and criminal profilers and reality TV producers and drug companies, are eager to see the madness in people. Mental health labelling is creeping closer to the boundary of normal. Difficult toddlers are now bipolar children. What I discovered is a fascinating tale about the corrosive dangers of reducing people to their maddest edges. Well, I trust that the ridiculous forced humor and uh, ridiculous juvenile sound effects and things in that clip make very clear who John Ronson's intended audience is, so I'll leave you to decide whether or not you would actually like to read his book in its entirety, but I think we get the gist of the message from that. Basically that, well, it, these psychopaths were being told they're everywhere and were being told that they're extremely difficult to detect and that all of these signs uh, uh, can possibly be signs of psychopathy, but they fit in with so many other normal human behaviors that it raises the question, could this be a type of witch hunt where we start seeing psychopaths everywhere. And I think that is a very real danger. Once this type of idea becomes something of a meme, it starts to lose its original specificity, its context. To me, I think the idea of psychopathy in the corporate world or psychopathy in political world is interesting as a way of looking at the organizational effects that this has on looking at the bigger scope of things. But when we start trying to identify psychopaths here and there and defend ourselves against them at every opportunity, it seems to me that it sets up the situation where a lot of people will just go off half-cocked with certain, maybe a glib understanding of what psychopathy is and go start hunting for psychopaths everywhere. And as I say, I'm not against the idea of psychopaths existing, and I'm not against the idea of people trying to, even trying to identify them, but I think that there is a very real danger that is run here when it starts to become, well, just a, an everyday concept that everybody is looking for in every aspect of their life. I don't think it behooves us to really change our entire life around in order to adopt this mentality of looking for psychopathy everywhere. So what is ultimately the point of today's episode? Well, first of all, and foremost of all, I hope that you will go and look at the documents, the papers, the articles, and the videos that I've cited in today's episode, because there's a lot more information in there than I have been able to go through today, and a lot of very interesting things about this subject of psychopathy. But I also hope that today's episode serves as something of a warning or something of a break for people who are a little too eager to apply this concept to everything that is happening. I think that there certainly is an aspect of psychopathy in the world going uh, that's going on around us, and I think we have to be aware of that and able to at least identify what is happening. But I think when we start uh, hunting for psychopaths, I think we can run the risk of starting a witch hunt that will ultimately only make society worse, as every witch hunt throughout history, including the original witch hunts, ultimately did. So on that, well, prevaricating note, I will end this episode of the podcast. And once again, 
let me remind you that I will be taking at least two, perhaps three weeks off of the, this podcast. Of course, there will be radio episodes and videos and other things coming out on CorbettReport.com during that time, so I hope you'll stay with me. But on that note, let's end it there. I am your host, James Corbett, thanking you for joining me and asking you to join me again next year for the continuation of the Corbett Report. <laughs>